Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamel. Thank you for joining me again. I hope you're well. I myself am fine. I am, I'm concerned. I'm a little bit freaked out because last week I told you, I dared to say this out loud. I said that I was starting to find great comfort as a socially anxious person in lockdown and that I, I was ill almost even. No, I fully admitted to the fact that I was afraid of being unleashed back out into the world because I'm, I am a socially inept person who just prefers stinking alone in my underpants. And I didn't see it coming that a couple of days after I said that, it would be announced by the mayor of LA, where I am currently living, that he's extending lockdown here for another three months at least. So uh, very much so, be careful what you wish for. But also, not that I think I have this kind of power, I would still like to formally apologise for even saying that out loud, for putting that out into the universe. If I have in any way jinxed us, I'm sorry, because I I really thought it was going to be over soon. And um, it's been keeping me up at night, worrying that I've had anything to do with it. Uh, obviously, I never wanted this for anyone else, just me personally, because, you know, I'm the sort of naturally lonely twat. Anyway, for those of you who are now still in lockdown for longer than you had anticipated, I hope that you have coping mechanisms. I hope you have support systems. I hope you have some sort of access to some sort of therapy. I, uh, I hope you have good good carbs around you and, and, and batteries. You must have batteries for all of your sex toys. These are the sort of thoughts that I have day to day. Um, I, I'm particularly happy to have today's guest on especially at this point in lockdown, because he's a very strong and inspiring and motivational human being. He is the actor, singer, writer, director, and Broadway star, fashion icon, Billy Porter. I'm so lucky that he made time to chat with me. His story is just remarkable. And he's lived such a long and full and interesting and textured life, uh, which he tells me all about in great detail. Now, um, I did not remember, and this is my mistake, to trigger warning last week's episode with Roxanne Gay, where we discussed briefly some graphic sexual violence. Uh, But I'm in to remember to do that today. Uh, Billy and I, again, very briefly discuss something abusive that happened to him in his childhood that might be triggering for anyone. So if you are someone who has uh, is sensitive around those sort of issues, then I would warn you to maybe step away from this episode. But outside of that, it is just a joyous, funny, and inspiring, galvanizing uh, 
just treat of a chat. I, I really feel changed since speaking to him. He goes off on one point and on a five-minute motivational rant at me uh, about the work that we have to do as human beings to better our own lives and how we must take control. And it his words have just stuck with me and and I find myself more motivated and driven than I have seen myself in years. So I hope this episode has the same impact on you and I hope you fall in love with Billy the way that I did. He really is just such a special star and we're so lucky to have someone like him be able to share such a remarkable story with such strength and clarity. And so please join me in just loving the living shit out of Billy Porter. Billy Porter, welcome to iWay. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for turning up looking so fabulous as oh, ever. Thank you. Thank I love you. that you just threw on some completely extra glasses and that's it. And you already look well, amazing. Red listen, carpet ready. I have to, I have to tell you <laughs> that right before the Oscars, I got a new prescription. Okay. And my stylist took some frames and had them be jeweled for the Oscars. So I have two pairs of glasses that have my new prescription in them. That's why I'm wearing these ridiculous glasses. I love them. I love them. This season. I was like, what in the name of Elton John is that? (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) They're great. I think you should wear them all the time. Um, Thank you so much for being here. How are you coping through the pandemic? Are you doing okay? I'm okay. You know, I'm trying to turn lemons into lemonade. I'm, I'm getting a lot of time to spend with my husband, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Also, you've been so fucking busy for like, I feel like yeah. three years straight. It must be yeah. nice to bond. It's like a couple, it's like a, yes. Yeah, that's been really wonderful to to reconnect and have this time to reconnect like that. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're good. I'm glad you're getting time with your husband after what has just been the most meteoric rise I've seen in a really <laughs> long time. I feel like the oh, last 18 sweet. months have been wild to watch and so thrilling. You are the person I most look forward to on any given red carpet. I enjoy your <laughs> interviews so much. I enjoy your vibe. I love your story. And I guess that's why I wanted you to be here today because you have such an interesting intersection of race and and gender and and what well, I mean not I, I know that you are a cis male but I'm just saying yes. that you you exist yeah, yeah, yeah. within the intersection of the stories of gender and race yeah. and sexuality in a way yeah. that is so important and also you've journeyed through the more oppressive side of this industry all the way through to the most progressive time in television that we've ever seen yes and so you have such yes. a unique perspective on not only yeah. the world but also this like this nucleus of, of of society where media bleeds out across the rest of yeah the the globe yeah that's really interesting it it does feel as though um <clears throat> all of the the journey which is what i call it um that at times has been very difficult for me mm-hmm. um has led me to the place that i'm in and it is the perfect time for me 
for a person like me. And, you know, the world has sort of caught up to where I was when I entered the business in the 80s, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't time. It wasn't time for the business and it wasn't time for me either. You know, I had to live. I had to live long enough to understand what this moment in time is for me and for the world and how to engage mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the best way possible. It's and this, I wouldn't have been able to do that earlier in my life. For sure. I was going to say that I, I love it when people make it big later in life because yeah, yeah. they have the opportunity to, well, they're afforded the dignity of being a disaster in their 20s like we all are. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus yes. Christ. I wish I hadn't been on Twitter in my fucking 20s. What a nightmare. <laughs> what an idiot. What an asshole I am. I am so mortified. Uh, I'm even mortified about being on my th- in, on Twitter in my 30s because of the mistakes <laughs> that I continue to make. But I... Uh, I'm definitely glad that I entered Hollywood, at least in my 30s. And, you know, you are having this moment right now where you seem like you are just ready for everything that comes. Like all of your decisions have felt so thoughtful and and uh, meaningful and i don't think and intentional yeah and in an industry it's intentional exactly and in an industry that that so obsessively centers itself around youth and puts yeah. such young people right in the middle of the spotlight when they are not equipped to to really handle or marry anything together properly is so right. fucking mad because it's grown adults who right. know what to do with this platform and right. you're using it so, as you said, intentionally, so expertly. Uh, I want to take us back to when you were five, which yes. I believe you said was the first time you ever engaged in therapy. Yes. I was a sissy. And the people around me were afraid that I wasn't masculine enough, which is always the conversation. And I was sent to a therapist to assess why I was not masculine enough at five, essentially, you know, and I went to this man for a year every Wednesday after kindergarten. And um, eventually, you know, he said, oh, he's fine. You just need to get a man man around the house to teach him to be more of a man. Um, You know, and it just, it's like, that's where it began. It started at five. I've never been masculine enough mm-hmm. for anybody. Um, whatever the fuck masculine means. Whatever the fuck that means. Yeah. Whatever that means. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, in our world and in our society, it still is the thing to aspire to. Mm-hmm. You know, I speak of it even inside of how I've been playing with clothing. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody questions when a woman wears a pantsuit on the red carpet. Nobody questions it. Because it's masculine. And masculine is good. It's run by the patriarchy. The world is run by the patriarchy, which is men. So women in pants is celebrated. Mm -hmm. Men in dresses are disgusting. What is that? And why is that the conversation? And why do we forget that Jesus wore a dress? We like to call them robes, but it was a dress. Why do we forget that India 
Africa, mm-hmm. you know, even as early, as far back as, as America, it, there were all types of different kinds of, of garments that weren't just about masculinity or femininity. And they were way more comfortable. Oh, my God. Allow like, the balls and the shaft to be free. <laughs> Set them free. Why do we keep them enclosed all of the, the, the balls time? It's not the right. shaft. It's not <laughs> I'm gonna kill right. you. I the worry. I worry the about the balls and the shaft, Billy. I think about That's them hilarious. all the time. <laughs> I think they should be allowed to have free range. To like, be free. Yes. yes honey. I really truly feel passionately about it. Um, but you're right. There is there is a definite extra discrimination on anything that is effeminate about a man because women are qualified as weak and lesser than. Right. And it's a, de- a devastating misunderstanding. I'm not in humans. that conversation anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. You so know, what were your teams just, like after that? Like how was there, was there a concerted effort to uh, insert masculinity into your surroundings? It was always over my head. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always, but the issue for me was that, unfortunately, you know, at the end of that therapy, when, when, the, when the therapist said, you need to get a man around the house teach him, to teach him to be more of a man, my yeah. mother, within a year, had met and married my stepfather, who then proceeded to sexually molest me for five years. Oh my fucking God. So for me, it was like, oh, well, these are my man lessons. So this must be my man lessons. Like, this is what, you know, so I didn't even really know that there was anything wrong. And then around the age of 11, 12, you know, the preacher was preaching abomination. You know, I heard about AIDS on television, on the news. I thought I had it. And that was what launched my teenage years. So I, you know, and we spoke of the other day in in pre-interview about trauma and and dealing with that kind of trauma. And I'm, I'm, I'm going back to that right now to really, I mean, I've dealt with it my whole life, but now I'm really sort of getting into peeling back the layer of how that has affected me Mm. in my adult life. And one of the things that got me here was to this place of openness, to this place of needing to go through whatever the pain of that trauma is, as opposed to compartmentalizing it because I've gotten really good at that part, um, was a part of that decision, first and foremost, was that I'm in a relationship and it affects that relationship. So now I need mm-hmm. a different kind of help. Um, the second part of it was extracting myself from the masculinity race, game, whatever you want to call it. It really has opened me up and freed me up to do this kind of work because I don't give a fuck anymore. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be masculine for anybody. I don't care. I need to actually be free and I need to heal. And if that looks too feminine to everybody, fuck it. I don't care. 
So that's sort of where I am. Um, and it's a gift to be in a space where one is ready to heal. And also where now, for the first time in your life, you're not only living in self-acceptance, but you're living in mass acceptance and celebration. So many people are looking to you to either celebrate you from the outside or those who live inside a similar existence as yours are looking to you as an inspiration for them. And so I didn't know that about your childhood. And yeah. I'm so, so sorry that that happened. Oh, it's all good. But I... I'm also so thrilled for you that you have access to the care and to the people, the support structure around you now to find your way yeah. outside to the other side and be able to use that to talk about it for other people. What was your mental health like in your teens? Um, After all of that, like what were the... You know, my art sort of supplanted any kind of um, breakdown or issue that would come from that. I could always just go to my art. Um, I was lucky. Mm -hmm. You know, it, my art has always been a gift, whether it was my voice initially singing to then dancing to then going to drama school, then writing, then directing, you know, over the 30 year career that I've had, um, I've always just been able to put it all in my work. And I mean, this industry is imperfect in so many ways and representation has been a fucking abysmal until now. But, yeah. but I do also know that of all of the industries you could have entered, that was probably the safest one for the fact that there were so many people who were from different walks of life and in particular different sexualities within that industry. Would you have said yeah, that about the I arts mean, back then? I, I would say that the arts masquerades as being inclusive, mm -hmm. the people inside of the industry are very inclusive, generally. Um, you know, but they have to answer to the bottom line. And the bottom line has not always been inclusive. Mm -hmm. So, yes and no. Well, it's, yeah, it's it's a, it's a funny one with the bottom line because I really feel like we've just seen it proven again and again and again and again that it was just that they were too afraid to take the risk of what would happen if you show reality on a TV screen, if you show people with disabilities or you show people of different races and if you make, uh, you, you know, we saw it with Bridesmaids. The first time mm -hmm. we made a film like that, it was a smashing success. Same thing with Crazy mm -hmm. Rich Asians, Black Panther, mm -hmm. Pose. Uh, you just, mm -hmm. you name it. And every time we have just slightly broken that barrier and t tried to show something more realistic and more representative of the whole world around us. It is yeah. a roaring success. And then afterwards, you see a million copies of the same thing come out. Right. The bottom line <laughs> yeah. is, is has been predicted by a bunch of idiots Old who are white. 
Yeah. Men. And who are people who are afraid to try and they jump straight on the bandwagon. It's not like they're so hateful even that once they've seen it works, they won't make the same. They follow where the money goes. They just never right. took a chance on us. That's what I say. Yeah. It's all based on the bottom line. For sure. You can be anything you want. If you're making money, you can do anything you want. So what was your solace in your sort of 20s when you were struggling somewhat with your career and kind of trying to find your place as someone who's still having to, I guess you were still having to kind of hide your femininity as no, I, when you were an well, actor? Well, it wasn't about hiding it because I never could hide it. And I wasn't, just, and I was never that feminine. It was just... As a black man, yeah, in nineteen eighty-seven, yeah, slash ninety-one, when I came out of college, if you didn't play a drug dealer or a thug, you didn't work. If there were, if there was a breadth of roles like there are today mm-hmm. for young people, where I could play a professional, where I could play a lawyer or a doctor or a, you know, like that didn't exist. Mother. <laughs> that didn't exist then. Yeah. You know, you were a thug or you were unemployed. Mm-hmm. You were a drug dealer or you were unemployed. And you were always so, straight. And, and it was always straight and violently so. So, or you could be the butt of the joke. You could be, you know, the flaming queen as the butt of the joke with, you know, a scene here and a scene there, but it wasn't. It wasn't about three-dimensional human beings. No, it wasn't empowering or representative. You know, uh, and I just wanted to be that. I wanted to be a human being. I remember going to see Angels in America, the very first production uh, on Broadway. Not the first production of the play, but the first production in on Broadway. And, um, you know, seeing the character of Belize in Tony Kushner's magnum opus. Uh, it really changed my life. It was like, oh, right. I am a human being and I look like that. That's what it looks like. And that's when everything changed for me because I took myself out of where I was headed mm-hmm. and shifted my focus. And it took me a long time, but pose is where I always wanted to be. Pose as a manifestation of making that change and that shift all the way back in 1994. So pre-Pose, when you were still somewhat struggling to be able to be recognized for your talent uh, on a mainstream level, what were you doing to maintain your sense of self in what was still a very homophobic and racist time in America? Not to say that it isn't still now uh, in many ways, but it's, I think it's better than it was before. Um, just keep, I just kept doing the work. You just kept you doing the work. You have to stay work. focused on the work. And you stayed in therapy all that time and you... I stayed in therapy and you do the work. When you do the work, the, you know, George Wolf, one of my mentors said, you don't, you can't ever wait for somebody to give you permission to practice your art. You mm-hmm. have to be practicing it consistently all the time. That's also very similar to what my grandmother and my great aunt and my mama always said to me, mm-hmm. you know, stay ready. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I love that so, I love that so much. I'm getting that tattooed across my tits. <laughs> it's, it's true. Oh, I the love that. The work looks like if you stay ready, whatever it is that you do, whoever it is that you are, do the work. If you want to be an actor, do the work. 
Make sure that you're in class. Make sure that you're auditioning. Make sure that you're reading plays. Make sure that you're going to the theater. Make sure the work. Y'all know what the work is. Mm -hmm. And if somebody has to tell you what the work is, then you don't want to do the work. You know what the work is. Anybody who wants to do anything knows exactly what the work is. And if you don't know what it is, find out. It's easy to find it out. You know, for me, it was like, I can't get, I can't get hired to do a play. Nobody thinks I can act in New York City. So what did I do? I started doing plays at regional theaters all over the country. I stopped doing Broadway. I took a pay cut and I started doing re- plays at regional theaters because they were the only people that would hire me. That's the work. Whether it's Louisville, Kentucky, whether it's Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whether it's Atlanta, I did the work. I went out of town. I did, the, you know, the top dog underdog and the angels in America. And, the, you know, I was like, well, y'all won't hire me in New York, but I'm going to do it somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm going to practice and I'm going to make sure my muscles are are uh, Warmed up. trained yeah. so that when, you know, the audition for the revival of Angels in America in 2010 came around, you know, and, and they called me the day before and my agent was so, you know, so angry because I didn't have time to prepare. And I said to him, there's one role in the entire canon of the world that looks like me. It's 20 years old. If I don't know that part already, that's my fault. (laughs) I knew every line of every scene. Seven hours, I knew every line. I'm ready. I'm already ready. I know they're doing this play. Why would I not already be working on this play and this audition? Why would I not be doing that? That is the work. Yeah. So when they call you the day before, I already knew the scenes and I was already off book. And that Angels in America audition is a example of that. For sure. You know, when I teach, I go around and I teach, you know, and I've, I, I have taught a lot in musical theater classes. And I'm like, look at what's on Broadway. Look at the roles that are right for you mm-hmm. and prepare yourself. That audition might come around. If you if you're a bl- if you're a Latin man or a black boy or a black girl or a person of color in any kind of way and you don't know every single word to Hamilton that's your fault. <laughs> if you have to scramble to learn the material when you get the audition that's your fault. If you're a young white boy who can sing his ass off or black boy now, because the role is black now, and you don't know every single word to Dear Evan Hansen, that's your fault. You can't wait for somebody to tell you to get prepared. Be prepared. That's what the Boy Scouts told me the two weeks I was in it. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you should write them a letter. <laughs> what an impact they made. That is that's so fucking brilliant. And I feel like uh, my my generation and the generation after me definitely are prone sometimes, you know, it's the thing that we're most mocked for, for apathy or for waiting for opportunity. And this is the message that we most need because we are in such a competitive situation. And even though there are yeah. thousands of shows, it doesn't take away the fact that there are thousands of people waiting 
in line for those shows. And the fact that you just stayed warm like an athlete throughout that, you didn't just wait for the Olympics. You were training all all of the time. The whole time. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that was really a very... That's just been really the point for me Mm -hmm. and how I have... I'm very, very blessed, you know, because I learned that skill set from growing up. I learned that from going to Carnegie Mellon University. You know, they really taught us how to self-generate, how to, um, you know, being an artist, you you have to show up for yourself. You have to generate it for yourself. You can't wait for other people to tell you what to do or how to do it. You have to do it. Yeah. You know, I know I, I totally, totally hear you. So then Kinky Boots came along mm-hmm. and that was a really big moment for you, both in your yeah. career, but also emotionally. How did that yeah. feel to finally start to get that recognition and finally start to really feel uh, as though you are a valued and respected member of your theater community? Um, you know, it was the original dream come true. Mm -hmm. You know, I had taken some time away. I had taken space for myself creatively to figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to say Mm -hmm. in the world. And I chose myself. And I chose myself at a time when it wasn't popular to choose the person that I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say it's easy to be who you are when what you are is what's popular. Who I am was not popular. You know, so to choose myself at the time that I chose myself meant bankruptcy, unemployment, being dismissed, being ignored, not having work for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't like, a couple of months or a couple of years. It was a very long time that I sat on the cliff of obscurity, wondering if I would ever be able, if I would ever be able to um, come back, if I would ever have the life that I had dreamed for myself. So when Kinky Boots came around, it was like, that's the role. That's the role that is at the end of this, the light at the end of this darkness, this tunnel that I've been in. I chose myself and now I get to play this part where this human being in this, in this play chooses himself as well, slash herself. You know, it's like I lived it so I could be it. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with Pose. I lived that. I lived it. I lived through the AIDS crisis. You know, I lived it. I was there for that. So, what a gift it is, you know, to be able to step into my own story Mm. and remind the world that we're here, we always have been, we always will be, and we ain't going nowhere. I love that. I want to ask you about that audition in just a second. We're going to go to a quick break. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. And we're back. Okay, so you've taken time out at this point. The audition of your life turns up. The role you have been waiting for for decades is there. How, How fucking scared were you? How much hinged on that for you? Um, I wasn't scared at all. Ugh, I want to be you. You know, I was having, but with this, I had gone through a really rough time from the day after 9-11. I developed a severe case of acid reflux that attacked my voice. Oh. And I had cords of steel up until the age of, 30, 31. And then this thing happened. And all of a sudden, my voice was in transition. Um, you know, it wasn't um, as uh, I couldn't depend on it as much as I could in the past. You know, the musculature with which I sang you know, which I have labeled extreme singing. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's like Whitney Houston, 
Celine Dion, Jennifer Hudson, you know, Cynthia Erivo, Shoshana Bean, you know, like it's that, Diva. it's that, it's that voice. I had a voice like that when I was young as a man. I could sing like that. Wow. And so that went away. And I think it was a combination of me longing to be received as something more than, my, more than a voice, but also having to go through the journey of what that is, not having the voice, not having the crutch, not having that thing to lean on forced me to go deeper in every way, go deeper in my art, go deeper in my humanity, go deeper because my voice was my weapon for so long. My voice was my savior for so long. And all of a sudden it couldn't be. So fast forward now, I had, I had pretty much healed from it, but I would have bouts of my voice just going away Mm. because of stress. So I remember the last, you know, the stress of the audition process for this show because quiet as it's kept, there was a reputation that then preceded me. He can't sing anymore. Can he sing anymore? Can he do eight shows a week? Can he do this? You know, there was that kind of doubt doubt in other people's minds that was being dumped on me in, in the sense that the audition process for me was about proving something that I had already spent two decades proving. It's not like I had just gotten off the bus. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you question, can I do it at all, was like, that stressed me out a bit. And that um, sort of brought up my acid reflux. Oh, shit. During the audition process, during the final, final audition. And I lost my voice in the middle of it, in the middle of that process. It was like, I went to my final audition, or no, I went to a final work session vocally. And there was that doubt in that music session, not from the musical director, who was a friend of mine, but from some of the people in the room, some of the producers in the room. I don't know what, who it was or whatever. And by the time I got home that night, my voice was gone. I couldn't even phonate at all. I couldn't even speak. And I called my mother and I was like, I need you to get on your knees and pray for me right now (laughs) so that I can have a voice tomorrow at noon because that's my audition. So I woke up the next morning at like seven o'clock and I slowly warmed up my voice and just tried to get any sort of tone in it at all. 
went to the audition. I could croak through it. Um, and the minute I left the building, I couldn't speak. Um, did you think? But you might I got have, the job. Did you think you might have blown it when you were in there? No. Great. <laughs> I didn't think I blew it. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I blew it. I just thought they'll be smart or not. They'll be smart and hire me or they won't. So did it feel good when you got that call and you got that job? Yeah, it did. And I stayed with it for three years, doing eight shows a week to prove to everybody in the industry, stop questioning me. Are we done with the questions about whether or not I know what I'm doing and how to do it? Mm -hmm. I didn't just get here. I didn't just get off the boat. I've been doing this my whole life. Stop questioning me. Yeah. And so you told me when we were chatting in our pre-interview that it was actually after Kinky Boots that you had your realization around the way that you wanted to present yourself. It wasn't during. There was something about finishing that project, walking away after that, that you found your own in embracing your sort of, I guess, escape of the binary. Gender fluid. Gender fluidity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I played Lola in Kinky Boots. You know, I sort of leaned into this thing that everybody in my whole life prior to that told me would be my liability. So here I am. (laughs) Now this feminine side of myself has, you know, gone viral. I'm winning awards. I'm starring in a Broadway show, blah, 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 blah. You know, I always knew that I wanted to have an intersection between my art and fashion. Mm -hmm. And I was going on tour and I was trying to figure out what it would look like. And I was really trying to figure out how to re-enter the the music industry space for real. You know, like, what would that look like at my age? I need to have a look. What is that look? And I was in search of what that would be. And I stumbled across a designer named Rick Owens and I went into the store and it was all this sort of androgynous, gender bendy, gender fluid stuff. And it just blew my mind and it never occurred to me. And it was like, oh shit, right. It's like, this is an extension of Lola, which is an extension of myself. Why not put this on? Like, why not? Why am I holding myself back from wearing a dress if I want to wear a dress. Set like, those balls in that shaft free. <laughs> Set the balls in the shaft. <laughs> Set the balls in the shaft free. You know, so like, what is that? Like, why am I? So I just dipped my toes in the water for that moment. And then Pose happened. And as I was hiring, you know, my stylist and trying to figure out the direction that I wanted to go, You know, I knew that I wanted to investigate and play with this gender thing that I had been playing with on my own. And it just sort of naturally evolved. It was an evolution that sort of was organic and uh, made sense. Um, Yeah. Was there any influence also from Pose, the fact that you were sort of 
you know, you, you've you've talked before in interviews about how much you learned about the ballroom community and how much you learned about uh, different parts of the LGBTQ spectrum and yeah, the transgender learned, community. Yeah. The trend, the T and LGBTQ was largely absent from my experience, knowledge, and my yeah. experience. And you know, I always say I was ballroom adjacent because. I just wasn't in the community because I was doing eight shows a week on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I was, that's just what it was for me. Um, my activism was through the Broadway community vis-a-vis Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS, you know, um, and the Actors Fund and stuff like that. However, you know, when I think about Paris is Burning, you know, just like Angels in America, that was one of the only spaces, places where we saw where I saw myself reflected back at me. So with Pose, I just thought, well, it's about this sort of freedom. The show is about this kind of independence, you know, this kind of authenticity. So if there was any time where playing with gender on the red carpet would be in alignment with the work that I'm actually doing, it would be right now. Mm. this is the moment, you know, because what I'm doing on the red carpet reflects actually what I'm doing on television. I got to call to host the Oscars and host the red carpet on the Oscars. And um, I remembered my friend, Adina Menzel, who, you know, a few years prior to, to my invitation had been invited to sing from Frozen. And, you know, John Travolta said her name wrong and she became a household name overnight. And I thought, I need an Oscar moment. I need somebody to say my name wrong at the Oscars. I literally said that out loud (laughs) when it happened. Because I knew when it happened, what was going to happen to her. You know, because the Oscars is our um, Super Bowl. And as Mm -hmm. a businessman, I understood that. You know, so once again, as it was intentional, I got the call and it was like, well, what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? And I went, it was my first uh, fashion it was my first time at Fashion Week. And I walked into a Christian Siriano show and I remembered how inclusive he naturally has always been. And for people who don't know, who aren't familiar with Christian Siriano, he uh, is one of the first designers, first mainstream, huge designers to actually expand the sizing for his clothes to be willing to dress bigger actresses and actors and to be uh, inclusive on the runway and in his sizing for people to buy. And when he did it, uh, something that the rest of the fashion industry has been too afraid to do, he tripled his income in the first year. So that's Christian Siriano, someone who really believes in change and has such a diverse runway. And because of knowing the pushback that we had already been receiving from designers who who thought that they could decide for me, Mm -hmm. was like, well, we were asking for masculine and feminine clothes to be sent over and they would just not send feminine things. They would just not send it. I'm not asking you to name names, but is there anyone who's dressing you now who wouldn't dress you back then the way you wanted to be dressed? No. So have you cut those people off? You just didn't go back Uh, to them? I just didn't. We just haven't gone back. Mm -hmm. It was just, it's okay. But like, I get to choose that. And so being at that Christian Siriano show, having gotten that telephone call, remembering, you know, 
joking with my friends watching the Oscars in college. Oh, I'm going to wear a ball gown. I'm going to wear a ball gown. It was like, oh, shoot. Wait a minute. Wait a motherfucking minute. This might be ball gown time. You know, but I knew that I would need to find somebody who would be willing to do it, find a high-end designer who would be willing to do it. And I walked into the Siriano show and I thought, oh my God, this is it. So at the party, he had a little dance party. I went to the dance party. I, I cornered him on the floor and I just whispered in his ear what my idea was, which was, I want to do a tuxedo gown. I didn't know how they were going to shoot it, but I just thought if they, if the shot is tight and it looks like from you know, from the waist up that I'm wearing a tux. And then when they pull back, they see that it's a ball gown. Um, that's your Adina Menzel moment. That's my Adina Menzel moment. The world will gag. Um, and and gag it did. <laughs> the world gagged a lot more than I thought they would. <laughs> I really, I, you know, the, the literally I speak of it in terms of, um, uh, B-O-A-O, before Oscar and after Oscar. My career before the Oscars and my career after the Oscars mm -hmm. is starkly different. That was when I first came across you and I had been sitting there choosing my best dress, best dress, best dress, and then your picture came up and I was like, fuck everyone else. I was like, I'm erasing them. This is my best dress. This person is my best dress. Who the fuck is Billy Porter? I have to know him. Uh, and then the Met Gala. Jesus Christ, did you blow the Oscars off the stage? You turned it up in dressed in gold like Cleopatra being carried by six men who were topless yes. and hot as fuck, by the way. Yes. Uh, yes. They carried you in on like, like it was a Britney Spears VMA entry. It was one of the best <laughs> and most regal things I've ever seen. What gave you the idea to do you know, that? It's nice to have. Okay. So Ryan Murphy, I was at Ryan Murphy's table and he said, you should go as the entire um, mahogany Diana Ross montage. <laughs> Great. And I was like, bitch, I don't want to work that hard. When, where am I going to change? Like, it's like everybody wants it. And that's like, that's a great idea. But like, I'm the one who has to do it. So like, what is it going to be? What, like, I went and watched the montage and I said, what would be the, the most fun outfit to sort of take from this? And it was the Egyptian look. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, okay, let's go Egyptian. And then, you know, my stylist, Sam Rattel, was like doing research and the sun gods and, you know, bowing to the sun and the, and the, and the sun gods, they don't walk, they're carried everywhere. So like, it just expanded, you know, it just, the idea just expanded from there. We went with the blondes and the blondes had their ideas and the wings and the decker guy and it's on, you know, and then I know how to wear it. Yeah, you, know, you once sure it's on me, shit did. Oh my goodness. Once Even it's when on you... me, I'm going to wear it. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do in it. That moment where you stepped off and they let you down and you lifted what kind of felt like wings up to the they sky on those stairs. Oh my <laughs> They are wings. Goodness. <laughs> That was, it was, I get hot just thinking about it. It was such a glorious moment of such like self, 
It was the official Billy Porter has fucking arrived. (laughs) I don't remember anyone else going to the Met Gala that year. I feel like you just went on your own. It was just you and your henchmen. just so fabulous that's it's very been, sweet thank you it's been a real joy because also what you have beyond the layers of the fabric of the fashion that you have used to bring you to the global attention of everyone is that you've brought a story and a messaging and you are using this opportunity to talk about representation to talk about the experiences of your community or communities that you were adjacent to and that's yeah. something that i really appreciate you and you're talking about mental health and child abuse and all of these different things you are you are a kind of embodiment of destigmatizing, and it's something mm. that I find very inspiring about you. Mm. I've never heard it like that before, but thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for sharing with everyone. It's really hard to go through so much trauma and then be able to find the tools to look back into that trauma, take it apart, rationalize it somewhat, and then share mm. it with other people so that they can unpack their own pain that's the gift of being an artist yeah and that's our job as artists i think for me Mm -hmm. you know it's like that's how i have healed through seeing that kind of representation through art through you know it's it's changed me it's saved me i'm sane i'm an actually sane person because Mm -hmm. of the arts because of that um And I just have to pay it forward. I really, really must pay it forward. Well, we're going to go to a little break and then I want to talk about Pose. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I want to talk to you about Pose because of the impact this show has had on so many people around the world, on the insight it's given so many of us into this beautiful and inspiring community that is the ballroom community. And Pose has been such a labor of love of Janet Mock and Stephen Canals and uh, something that Ryan Murphy helped to bring to the mainstream. What has this show done for you on an emotional level? We know what it's done for career stuff. Um. It's taught me to dream the impossible. You know, I've always had huge dreams. Um, I never imagined, but they were always springboarded off of something that I had already seen. I was never dreaming the impossible. I was never dreaming something I had never seen before, which is me. Mm. The world had never seen anything that looks like me before you know, that looks like us. They haven't seen it, you know? And so I'd never dreamed that I would be in a mainstream television show where I get to tell the story of my life, represent my life, tell the stories of the people 
my friends who didn't make it remind the world that they were here. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I just, I have no words for it. You know, it is such a gift. And, you know, I'm so grateful that I lived long enough to see this day. And, and uh, yeah, that really is the truth. And it's an opportunity for the world to see two gay black men in love uh, on screen, which is such an important yeah. story to be able to tell. And also they're both living with HIV and we're having yeah. that conversation in a destigmatized way. The trans conversation is happening in a destigmatized way. And something I talk about a lot is my desire to, to do anything I can to help tell stories about in particular the black and latinx like trans community stories that don't revolve just around the horror that we read in the news because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's only it's such a small fraction and such a sensationalized yeah. fraction of of their existence and what i love about yeah. pose is that it shows the full spectrum of their experience the good yeah. and the bad and the love in that community i've never i've only recently been uh, lucky enough to enter into that space and I've never seen such love even in the most brutal moments of competition Mm -hmm. where everything is on the line straight Mm -hmm. afterwards after all of the worst things are said the love that pours out between the competitors and between the members of the community is just something there's nothing like that Mm -mm. there isn't you know through the through the starkest you know we choose love Mm. you have to choose it doesn't just happen and what have you, you learned? Have what have you learned other than learning how to, uh, other than being inspired to, uh, to dream the impossible? What have you learned about other people on this show that has changed you? I've heard you talk about understanding the experience of trans people more and the experience of yeah, women. And- I, I, I just didn't, I think this just goes, I mean, this goes back to pre, you know, this, this is like women in general you know, with the whole Hillary Trump thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't really understand the woman thing. And then you add trans on top of it. Like, I just didn't, I just didn't get it because I was in my own trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, so it lifted me, being on this show lifted me out of my own trauma and my own perspective and dropped me in the middle of somebody else's journey so that I could so that I could even be more empathetic than I already am and understand it more than I already, than I ever could possibly before. You know, it's like, we're all human beings. We're all human beings, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm. Even when it's uncomfortable, we're human beings. And we have to treat everybody with respect, human respect. That's all. I love that. And it's true. And I think it's on the way. We just need more and more and more of these stories. I'm glad to hear that Janet's got that deal with Netflix, where now mm-hmm. she has the access to tell more of these stories and the budget. And to I'm tell working more on these. my own, too. Oh, I'm working on yay. What, are you, what are you working on? I would love to you know, know about I'm working this. on a bunch of shit. Yeah. You know, well, you'll see it. It's coming. I'm, I'm working on my memoir and I'm working on a pilot and, you know, I'm working on, I'm working a lot of stuff. So will you tell us the story of your life one day uh, on screen? Yeah, definitely. Well, before 
you go. And thank you so much for being so candid and uh, giving me such an interesting insight into your life. Will you please, Billy Porter, tell me what you weigh? Um, you know, I weigh my relationships, you know, um, with my family, my mother, my sister, my husband, my friends. Um, I weigh my artistry. I weigh my activism. Um, you know, and I'm just trying to be compassionate about it because I weigh in a, you know, I have weighed in a way that's not always compassionate to myself. Mm. And I'm learning how to do that and how to be that. I'm trying to learn how to be compassionate while moving the energy forward. Where does your compassion not still lie? Um, in myself, being compassionate with myself. Over what? <laughs> over everything. Really? You're still beating yourself up? <laughs> oh, I beat myself up over everything. It has to stop. It's coming to an end. Okay. It's coming to an end. Okay, this is it. This is the final chapter. Well, maybe you can use yes. this this moment of respite where you're no longer on planes and trains and automobiles to yes. do that final bit of work. Because you've done so yes. much work to get to this headspace and this level of strength and being so robust and now being yeah. such a role model, which is a whole other level of pressure and people wanting to... Role model is not pressure when you're 50. <laughs> okay. Well, it's that's not pressure. It's the point. It's why I'm here. I don't have any pressure with that. That's not, you know, I, I understand when you're younger and you're, you know, you have to grow up in front of the world. I'm not growing up. I'm grown. Mm -hmm. I'm grown already. Well, good luck on your battle <laughs> with your inner demon. Uh, you are Thank a true you. light to the world. I can't wait to see once this ban is lifted and red carpets are reopened. I can't wait to see <laughs> what you're going to bring out the bag. Um, thank you, Billy Porter. Loads of love. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I just want to give an extra massive thank you to the people who helped me make this. Sophia Jennings, my producer and researcher. Kimmy Lucas, my producer. Andrew Carson, my editor. James Blake, my boyfriend, who made the beautiful music for this show. And now I'd like to leave you by passing the mic to a member of our community sharing their I weigh. I weigh being queer, being proud, and eating a lot of children. Love you, Jamila. Ryan from Salt Lake. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.